I would just, as we prepare our hearts for the word, I would just invite us to take a moment. Let's just pray. Lord God, as we come now into this moment, we ask that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts. Lord, we come and we just make ourselves available. We come not to just go through a time, but Lord, to really hear your voice. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, and I pray that as you speak, that we might be stirred up inside of where you want us to pay attention and taken ever deeper in love with you and one another. I pray now I'd be out of the way in Jesus who we've seen and what is said and done would bring you glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this past week, um, we began the season of Lent, as many of you are aware. And so on Wednesday night, if you were here for the Ash Wednesday service, you know we came and we applied ashes. We still have some residue kind of around the sanctuary uh, this morning. But Lent is a powerful season that was developed um, by the ancient church um, and it's a way of a time of fasting and repentance. And so the idea was that you would give up something, like maybe food, for instance. You might give up a certain meal each week or several meals. Or you might give up something that's very special to you, like coffee or maybe it's chocolate or television. And the idea was that whenever you are thinking about doing that thing, you know, I don't know about you, but when I miss a meal, my stomach clock goes off, I'm thinking about it. Whenever you were going about that, then it would be a reminder to stop and to focus in on God and to spend some time praying and reflecting. And so on one end, Lent was a season to help us do that work as well as to reflect on our lives where maybe we needed to repent and change direction on some areas but there was a second component in Lent. It was not just about what you're doing internally, but it's also what are we doing externally? Where are we paying more attention to the people around us and how are we investing into them as well? And so as we start this 40-day journey of Lent, I'm reminded of a passage that Jesus, we're told in the, in the Gospels, where it says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And this is when Jesus is now going to make his final approach to, to the city of Jerusalem where he knows that he's going to the cross. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I can't imagine how hard that was for Jesus. I mean, can you imagine if you knew this is only how much time you have left, and not only if you only knew this is how much time, if you knew what it was going to be like when you got to that time. And for Jesus, he knew it wasn't going to be an easy death. And so when Jesus started getting up with his face set towards Jerusalem, he knew he was on the final approach. And as he's walking, each morning when he would get up, there was this sense of, okay, I'm one day closer to what's going to transpire. But he made a decision. Each day, I am going to surrender to taking one step closer. In the same way, when Jesus was heading towards the cross, he was also going on our behalf. He wasn't just going through emotion but he had us on his mind is why he was going. And not only us, but the entire world. Pretty cool. And so Lent is kind of our opportunity to practice over the next few weeks this twofold piece of pressing into going deeper to God and thinking about how, how is God stirring me to go deeper and where am I paying attention to those that God would have me, in a sense, offer myself to help and to improve their lives. 
And so over this Lenten season, we're beginning a new sermon series today called I Am, and we're exploring the I Am statements of Jesus through the Gospel of John, which there are several. And as we explore these, it's really a time of exploring what Jesus is revealing about himself through these I Am statements, his purpose, and then ultimately insights in how we might follow Jesus more fully. And so that's kind of where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. And today we're going to begin with John chapter 8. Now, I didn't have Kendall read all of it because it is a super, super long passage, all right? If you want to read the whole chapter, you can. I would encourage you to do so. But there's a lot in this chapter. And so let me just kind of paraphrase it, and then I'll pull out a verse or two that I think will be helpful. In the beginning of chapter 8, we get this story that Jesus is in the temple courts, And as he's in the temple courts, he is speaking with people, and all of a sudden, the religious leaders come, and they are dragging a woman, and they throw her down in front of Jesus. And as she is there in the dust, as she has just been belittled, these Jewish leaders say, this woman was just caught in the very act of adultery. And our law says, if you're a true Jew, our law says that She is to be stoned. And they're really testing Jesus to see what he's going to respond with. How is he really really going to follow the Jewish practices, or is he going to speak against it, which would put him at odds within the people in which he was ministering to? And I love in the text, what we find is Jesus gets down on the dust, and he begins to write. And they continue to press him, and he eventually says, you know, hey, if you've not sinned, go ahead. You, you throw the first one. You throw the first stone if you've never sinned. And then he gets back down in the dust and begins to write again. And one by one, those religious leaders leave. And when there's no one else standing around, what is, I so appreciate and can envision Jesus down at the same level as this woman, down in the dust, And he says, look around. Do you see anybody who's here to accuse you? And she said, no. He says, well, I don't accuse you either. I don't condemn you. Get up. Go and sin no more. Go and don't leave your life of whatever has been inappropriate. Now, as Jesus goes on, then in this passage, we find that he re-encounters the religious leaders and he has quite a lengthy conversation around who he is and who they think he is. And they're confronting some of his statements. But the one that gets Jesus in the most trouble is found in John chapter 8, verse 58. When Jesus says this, he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, if you look at all that text and all the things Jesus says, of all the things that ticked these guys off, it was this one, these two words, I am. And they were ready to ultimately stone him. Now, I don't know, have any of you ever had anybody pick up rocks to throw at you? A few of you are going, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember back when I was a teenager, and um, I had a girl that I was interested in, and uh, she would walk by my grandmother's house, and um, 
I remember on one particular day that I don't know what possessed me that I filled my pockets with rocks and climbed up into a tree and waited for her until she started to walk by, and then I started to throw rocks at her. I'm thinking, what about this signifies I like you? But anyway, boy brain, that's what was going on. Uh, you can, needless to say, we never got together. But I will say, when I was in Israel studying for a semester, that a friend and I one time had headed out through East Jerusalem, and we were going out toward the wilderness, and we were approached by two young men who apparently knew that we were not from the area. And it was uh, quite traumatizing. All of a sudden, they picked up rocks, and they started to come after us and begin to palm it and throw them at us. A month later, we were in, um, we were in Bethlehem, and... All of a sudden, as we were in the crowd just going about our business, all of a sudden we saw the crowd part, like maybe if you watched what happened in Kansas City this week when the shooters began to fire, how people just began to spread. We saw a very similar situation as we saw a couple of young men, again, with kafis tied around their head and their, their mouths, and they were running literally through the streets of Bethlehem, and they were throwing rocks at anybody that was in their way. It's terrifying. You know, it's nothing fun, right? And Jesus was in a moment where they were picking up rocks. They were ready to do him in, so to speak, because of this, these two words, I am. And what was getting Jesus in trouble was this, that every Jew, when they heard I am, brought them back to a historical foundational moment in Judaism. And it was clear back when you remember the story of Moses, and he was in the wilderness, and there was a burning bush. And all of a sudden, as Moses sees the burning bush, he turns aside, he goes over to the burning bush, and he hears a voice talking out of it. And it's God. And God says, take off your shoes, Moses. Where you are standing is holy ground. Don't come any closer. This is a sacred place. And God goes on to have a conversation with Moses, and then he tells Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to deliver the people from bondage. And Moses says these words to God. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, as Jesus, as Jesus is reflecting, we hear this statement, there's a whole lot then that we find out that's reflected in this, these two words of I am. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of Moses, it was not uncommon that if you knew a person's name, that meant you had power over them. And so it's very interesting that when God responds, God says to Moses when he wanted to know his name, he says, I am who I say I am. I'm not telling you my name, but I am who I say I am. He's not giving away his power, so to speak. And so what we find in this text then is a number of things that kind of reveal about who this I am is. And I'm, we're going to go through this relatively quickly but I just want to paint a picture for you what was all going on with these two little words and what they meant in the Jewish mind. First of all, they would have meant that I am is alive and active. 
This isn't some statue of some foreign god that you're just kind of an image that's just there for to kind of memorialize. But it was really the idea that this god is involved in our lives. That there is no part of our life that God doesn't care about and that God is not in some way integrated with. God is very active and present with us. And he wants a relationship with his people. He's not one that wants to be neglected. He's not one that wants to be replaced or ignored. But this God really wants to be involved in our lives. And I want you to think about who in your life are the significant people. I mean, who are, who's got the most significance? And if they have high significance in your life, do you neglect them? Do we? You guys are like, no, we don't, right? I mean, that's kind of maybe a dumb question. But we find that the significant people we give time to, we give conversation to, we value, we serve. And God is saying, I want to have that same place in, with you. I want to be active in your world and in what's going on in your life. The I am also, we find, is self-defined. I am who I say I am. Now, listen to this. This is key. I don't know about you, but I find sometimes I try to create God into my own image. I want God to be the God I want God to be, rather than letting God be the God that God is. And what we find is that's what got Adam and Eve in trouble, is when they tried to make God what they wanted God to be, and they wanted to become that God, rather than they said, God, I want whoever you are to be that reality to be in me. I want to know that God. And, and I... So it's really an important statement that is made in that particular moment, that we don't determine who God is, but God is who God is. And I love that when we read throughout, we learn about who God is from creation, we find in the Bible. We learn it from God's interaction with people and through Scripture. We find that God reveals who God is. And I'm so glad we serve a God that has given us some great, um, great pointers of his character, which is he is good. We find that this God is holy, this God is righteous, this God is just, this God is merciful, faithful, loving. All the things we probably would say we could list. But you know, each and every one of those are highly important, and they are who God is. You know, I am so glad that I serve a God and walk with a God who is just. Anybody with me? I'm glad God has justice. I'm glad he stands for those who can't stand for themselves, but I also appreciate that when things get out of control in this world that I can trust that God's going to make somehow things right. But I'm way more glad that God is a God of mercy. Because I don't know about you, but I know I have missed the boat. And there are times I have really screwed it up. And I'm like, could anybody love me? Could anybody care? Could God ever still welcome me? And in God's mercy, he still says, yes, I can. That I can let go of that and welcome you. I mean, I'm so glad that we serve a God like that. But this I am also then is always was. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I was. And now granted, I know that we talk about a God who always was. But, you know, sometimes in our evolution creation debates that happen, I always think back to the point of in creationism, you know, we believe that there is, of course, a God that started everything and put it all together and designed it. 
which takes an amazing amount of faith, right? I mean, you think about it. You've got to go clear back to the very beginning. Think, now, where did God come from? And that's just way beyond our brain. I mean, I can't even go a place there. But you know what? If I go to evolution, the reality is somewhere, if you think Big Bang or whatever, something, there was something before the something that came there. Both take faith in some capacity. And, and I, I guess I personally am more comfortable settling in that that's God. That there's a God who didn't just happenstance it, but really had a plan. But he always has been there. This I am also, we find, is unchanging. That he says to Moses, he says, I am the same God that was with Abraham, as I am the same God that was with Jacob, I'm the same God who was with Isaac, that I'm the same God who's with you. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm glad God is not changing. He doesn't change the rules. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and I'd be playing a game and somebody changes the rules, that did not go well for me. I could get pretty ticked off because it wasn't, you know, you don't do it that way. That's not the rule. And so God doesn't change the rules and God is not one who's to be manipulated. Now, that does not mean God is not merciful and God doesn't respond to our prayers. I think God does. But God will not be forced to be something God is not and to go to a place God doesn't want to go. But God will also, in our prayers, is wanting us to be involved in the whole process of his work in the world. So there's a whole mystery in that. I know that's a whole sermon in itself. But just saying, and I am so glad that this God that's unchanging, you know, that he isn't moody or changes or um, if he gets ticked off, he just eliminates us. I mean, my kids, you know, for instance, in our home, um, Nancy is, my wife, is, is, she's a great mom and she's a great wife. And, and Nancy, though, she has the look, okay? I don't know if you have the look or you have a mom that has the look. Man, all they have to do is look. And you go, okay, I'm, I'm back down, you know? Um, I, I, no, I'm not going to cross that line. But for whatever reason, which I think my wife is way scarier than I am, my kids, though I think I'm super nice, I like, I'm always freezy going, free flowing, but my kids always say, yeah, mom's scary, but you're really scary. <laughs> it's because when I get mad, it really doesn't happen very often, and when I do, I let all bust loose. Now, I don't go swinging, but I definitely let it fly verbally. And my kids know it's going to be quite a, you know, I'm going to take them down pretty low. Um, and so, which isn't good. And I'm glad God isn't like that. That God isn't finally had enough and he just kind of wipes us off the map. We also know that this God is knowable because he says he shows up to Moses and Abraham and says, I want you to know who I am. God doesn't want to remain a mystery to us. I mean, there are things that will always be a mystery. God is beyond my comprehension, but I know God wants to be known by me, and he wants you to know him as well. And and he wants us to know that he's real in our lives and walking with us. He's also a God that is all-knowing. You know, when he's talking to Moses, he says, I have heard the cry of the Egyptians, or the, the Israelites in Egypt. I've seen their plight for the last 300 years. I've been hearing it. I know it's there. My heart goes out to them. God was working a process. That's all it. Why God takes so long, sometimes I don't know. But he's saying, I know what's going on. I know every hair in your head. 
So God's knowable. God wants us to know. And God is all-knowing. He knows everything that's going on in your situation right now. There's nothing that he's going to be surprised by. There's nothing that we're participating in that we think, oh, wow, if God only knew, he knows. My parents used to tell me that when I went on a date. Just remember, Jesus is in the car with you. Um, Just FYI. Um, So uh, those are helpful. Um, But also um, all-powerful. That this God is, he says, I am going to Egypt and I am going to take a people that is highly oppressed by one of the greatest armies of the world and I am going to deliver them from that. If he can deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians, he can deliver us and do anything. And finally, this God is a God that loves and cares for people. Which is so different than probably any other religion you will find in the world. That's what makes Christianity so special, is that God has come to be in relationship with us and wants to, He doesn't see us as tainting Him because He has relationship with us. God wants to walk with us because He loves us and He cares about us and He cares about our situation and He wants to relate with, He wants to deliver us from bondage and restore us and give us an inheritance. Now, here's why that's all important. Because when Jesus is asked, who are you? He says, this same I am is me. Jesus is saying, I am that I am, and I have come now to you. I have come, this is your burning bush moment. God has shown up in your midst to reveal himself and invite you into this relationship. And I've come to be that one. That he was on a mission because I love, you know, he comes to this woman. That's why I like the way this passage evolves because the very beginning, here's this woman who has been being held in bondage. And this I am comes on mission and rescues her and sets her free. And he comes on mission to us, each and every one of us, and says, I want to show up for you. There are places where we may find ourselves in bondage. Jesus says, I want to set you free. And there are places where you feel very distanced from God. He says, I want to come near to you. And there may be places where you feel like you are broken and separated. And he says, I want to bring restoration. And there may be places where you feel like you don't have hope. And he says, I want you to know that I have an incredible inheritance reserved for you. So as we come to the season of Lent and we walk it, know that this I am has come for you, has come to walk with you, to minister to you, to speak into your life and let you reflect him to those around you as well. May we come walking the journey that Jesus has invited us to. Let's pray.